you have a Bible now, would you please open it to the book of Hebrews? Today we are in chapter 6. Kevin's been joking with me all week that this is a perfect Mother's Day sermon. But not really. But it is a perfect sermon for any day. Uh, Probably what we're looking at today is one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. I don't really think it's that hard to interpret But I think answering some of the questions this text brings to the front of our minds is challenging. I've spent a great deal of time on this this week, read more than I can even tell you, and uh, thoroughly um, enjoyed my time in study. And here's hoping it translates into an intelligible, understandable message. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read beginning in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. By the way, uh, in the Greek New Testament, they don't have a way of underlining a word three times or putting something in quotation marks or using the glorious, ex, uh, what do you call that, exclamation point. What they do is they move to the sentence the first word to emphasize something. And the very first word in the Greek New Testament in verse 4 is impossible. Impossible. So he's talking about an impossibility here. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and tasted the, uh, the powers of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray as we look together at this word that is such a severe warning. We pray that your spirit would grasp us and get our attention and cause us to hear what the Lord is saying, what the spirit is saying to the church today. And we pray that we may have a teachable, receptive heart that is hungry for truth and a heart that desires to apply this word to its life in every dimension. And we pray you would get glory to yourself from this time 
and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage, of course, has been somewhat controversial. It's, it's been called a terrifying passage, basically because of verses 4 through 6. And the question that is on the mind of every interpreter studying or preaching or teaching on Hebrews 6 is who are the subjects, who are the people he is describing in verses 4 through 6. Now there's basically three things going on in this passage. And you see it in the outline I'm giving you. There is a serious, terrifying almost, warning. Then in verses 7 and 8, he gives an illuminating illustration that helps us understand what he's saying in verses 4 through 6. And then finally, because he's a pastor, and he has a pastor's heart, and he cares for his people, and he loves his people, he gives them a strong word of encouragement. And so as we go forward, we must then consider the fact that this is the writer of Hebrews' third major exhortation. It begins at verse 11 of chapter 5, and the author chides the readers for their lack of diligence and progress. He says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. He said, yet they had barely progressed beyond spiritual infancy. Now, starting at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4, he goes on to give the most urgent reason for their growth in the faith, namely, the real and terrible danger of apostasy. And apostasy means falling away from the faith. It means repudiating Jesus Christ. It is an absolute denial of the Lord Jesus Christ and his place in your heart. And so he's warning them here. The passage is one of the most sober in all of Holy Scripture, as well as one of the most fiercely contested. And we need to take careful stock at what he says. But the issue is, first, who or what kind of persons is he describing in verses 4 through 6 who are falling away, and then why the situation of apostasy is so very terrible. I may not get to the encouragement this week. You may have to come back to get lifted up and encouraged next week. But there is a lot here to cover. I'll try to give you a little encouragement so that you uh, leave the uh, service rejoicing in Christ. The passage presents one basic assertion. It is impossible, he says, to restore again to repentance those who have been once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. He said, if they fall away, they cannot be restored to repentance. They have crossed the line, so to speak. Now, one of the main problems in dealing with this text is deciding just who or what is being described. There are three main answers, each which depends upon the interpretation of what these descriptions portray. But before we address those matters, we can make two important observations. First, the writer of Hebrews is not describing the readers of this letter themselves. I say this because... He shifts here from the consistent use of the first and second persons to the third person. 
Notice how he speaks of those. He's not addressing them with you or us, but rather those who have been enlightened. He's not speaking directly of his reader situation, an observation that is confirmed by verse 9. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Second, we should nevertheless avoid describing what he's saying in verses 4 through 6 as merely a hypothetical situation. A number of translations use the word if here. It's not in the Greek text. If they fall away, but rather it is those who have fallen away. The situation of apostasy is very real. It's very terrible. It's a possibility, and it must be earnestly avoided. It is something that does happen, and it happens to real people. And it may be that there are particular people in view who have fallen away and can no longer be destroyed. Now, you remember the context of the letter to the Hebrews. This little uh, Hellenistic Jewish church, predominantly, were Greek-speaking, Greek-culturally-influenced Jews who had probably been steeped in Old Covenant religion and who through a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and becoming part of the church were so persecuted and so reviled and so abused that some began to drift away and others had completely left and returned back to the temple sacrifices, returned back to the old covenant and had denied and repudiated Jesus Christ. Some had already done that and the rest of the church, the writer of Hebrews is addressing to help them understand what a grievous and terrible thing it is to fall away. And so understand the pressures involved. Understand the dynamics here. Now, we're in a position now to attempt to look at the three main views regarding the identity of the people who fall away. The first is, and a number of impressive commentators take this particular view, is that these descriptions in verses 4 through 6 depict real salvation. That is, individuals who have been converted and have possessed a true and saving faith in Christ. The reason for this view is evident when we see just how strong these statements are. These people have once been enlightened. That seems to indicate conversion. Just as the rest of the terms seem to construct a thorough picture of a regenerate, believing person. These are people that have tasted the heavenly gift. That means experience. Shared in the Holy Spirit. Tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And the powers of the age to come. John Wesley, that great Methodist leader, made much of these verses writing. Must not every unprejudiced person see that the expressions used here are so strong and so clear that they cannot, without gross and palpable wrestling, be understood uh, of any but true believers. People who hold this interpretation cite these verses as a key proof against anyone having assurance of salvation or any sense of eternal security. Wesley was typical of the many others when he wrote, On this authority, John Wesley said, I believe a saint may fall away, that one who is holy or righteous in the judgment of God himself may nevertheless so fall, fall from God as to perish everlastingly. 
Now, it's a fairly compelling argument from these verses alone, but many passages do teach eternal security that those who are born again, those who possess a genuine saving faith, is there are myriads of Scripture all out through the Bible, and since God is the author of the Bible, God is infallible, He is true, there can be no contradiction in Scripture. That's important because Wesley's view flatly denies the statements like the one Jesus made in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one, you hear that? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. That is, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you are surrounded by the hands of omnipotence. Now, I had a friend one time who was an Armenian Wesleyan person, and they said, well, maybe nobody can snatch me out, but I can wiggle through the cracks in his finger. People who try to say that Christian, genuine, born-again, believing, saving faith Christians can fall from grace are committing the very error that Hebrews is warning against. I'll tell you more about that in a moment. The second reason why Wesley's view cannot be accurate comes from this very chapter of Hebrews. We must interpret any passage not only in the light of the whole of Scripture, but also in the context of what the particular writer is saying in this case. And the writer concludes this chapter with a bold statement of assurance for those who have truly received the gospel. Perhaps mindful of the false conclusions some may draw, in verse 17 of chapter 6, he writes, The unchangeable character of God's purpose with regard to the heirs of the promise. The point is that what stands beyond all human activity is God's sovereign ordination and promise and purpose. The author concludes by writing on, of God's covenant promises to Abraham. God desired to show that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul. These are hardly the words of someone who wants to convey a fundamental security to those who have trusted in Christ. The original readers of Hebrews, on the basis of this conclusion of chapter 6, would well recite Paul's great statement of his own insurance, assurance, for I know whom I believed and am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So that's one view, and I think we can dismiss that view as being completely out of harmony with the context and completely out of harmony with what the rest of Scripture clearly teaches, given that these phrases, at best, are ambiguous. The second major view of our text is that its language describes participation in the sacramental life of the church. According to this view, once enlightened refers to baptism. There is evidence that this terminology was used as early as the 2nd century A.D. Tasting the heavenly gifts speaks of the Lord's Supper, while sharing in the Holy Spirit speaks of the laying on of hands. Tasting the goodness of God's Word would correspond to preaching in the church, while the powers of the age to come would indicate the signs and wonders that accompanied the original preaching of the gospel and which the writer of Hebrews has already mentioned in chapter 2. Now, this is a pretty compelling picture. 
And it is one that could apply to those who have never truly come to saving faith in Christ, but enjoy these extraordinary privileges through their affiliation with the church. We know from our confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that there is both the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church are those who gather to worship the Lord on the Lord's Day, and it includes both regenerate and unregenerate. It, it is wheat and tares. Jesus spoke uh, in a parable of a man sowing a field of wheat, and a, 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 another person comes and sows sows into that field tares and the tares look like the wheat but aren't the wheat and Jesus tells us not to harvest the crop and try to pull the tares out because we're not capable to do so and so this particular view could have reference to what we consider covenant children it could have reference to children who have grown up in the church and been exposed to all of the grace that is available for someone who grew up in the covenant community and who has never really truly been converted. They understand all of these things. They participated in all of these things. But at the bottom, there is a lack of saving faith. That is a possible way of understanding. I'm not hostile to this interpretation. I think the language certainly suggests contact with the means of grace found in the church. But I think it's far more likely that these word pictures make Direct reference not to the sacraments, but to the experience of God's people in the Exodus generation out of Egypt. This is the third major view, and the one that best to me responds to the text and the consistency with which the book of Hebrews was written. The argument was lucidly made in an article in the Westminster Theological Journal by Dave Matthewson, and I read that article and was convinced with his conclusions. Matthewson reminds us that this epistle was written to show the Old Covenant both pointed to and was fulfilled by the coming of Christ, that along with the reader's familiarity with the Old Testament, uh, is why the writer consistently draws from Old Testament text and situations to make points about Christianity. This is his method. It is uniform. And there's no reason to think that he has departed from it in this passage, which, like others, derives its imagery from the life of Israel and looks back on the Exodus as the general backdrop. With this in mind, we can see that the author offers terminology his original Hebrew Christian readers would connect with, that is, the Exodus symbolism. Under this view, once enlightened probably refers to the pillar of light that guided the 12 tribes through the desert. The writer of Hebrews does not mean that the Christians literally saw the cloud of fire, but rather that they experienced what it signified. He gets at the same idea later in this epistle by writing that they have received the knowledge of the truth to guide them in this life. The same sort of connection can easily be made with each item in the list, such as manna, the manna Israel ate in the desert, the word of God that came through Moses, and the astonishing work of power that won Israel's deliverance from Egypt. According to Gerhardus Voss, this is consistent with the writer's overall bias toward what he calls the phenomenal aspect of religion, a point he considers vital to understanding Hebrews 6. 
So what is the point of all this? As we saw back in chapter 3 and 4, the great majority of those who left Egypt with Moses did not enter the promised land, but rebelled against the Lord, providing as great and a terrible portrait of apostasy as appears in all of Scripture. The warning, therefore, is like that, uh, that those who left Egypt as part of Israel, we may have a very real experience of the phenomena of God's saving power through our participation in the church. By, our, uh, by virtue of our affiliation with the people of God, by being in their midst, we can have a very great privileges described in our text and yet not actually enter into salvation. We will be enlightened with knowledge and we will encounter perhaps benefit from real spiritual power and we may be influenced and blessed in many ways. This was the very situation with those who left Egypt in the Exodus, but who fell away under hardship into rebellion and were judged by God and so they died in the desert. As we saw in our earlier sermons, this is a starker portrait of eternal despair as appears in all of Scripture. How could this happen? It can happen to us if our hearts are hardened toward God, despite all of the privileges we may know. Whether we take this description as pointing to the sacraments as a means of grace in the church or to Israel in the de desert, these two are so closely related that they may both be in view. The point is the same. This passage describes professors of faith who are within the church community, church members as we would say today, who experience the benefits of God's blessing in the church without ever genuinely nor personally committing themselves to faith in Christ. They are like the people Jesus spoke about in the Sermon on the Mount, the most chilling words he's ever said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so there is here the terrible reality of apostasy. This is who these people are. Those who have a personal but nonetheless secondary or indirect experience of Christianity. Let me put it this way. They may be supporting their parents' religion. They may be supporting their siblings' religion. But down deep in their heart and soul they have never established by grace, repented, and had a direct experience of Christianity. They may serve, they may preach, they may handle the powers of the age to come, but they do not belong to Christ. They are not his own. About such people the following assertion is made. It is impossible to restore them if they then fall away. Now these are very sober words indeed. The statement it is impossible is unavoidable. Indeed, as the first word in this whole passage, it is greatly emphasized. This means that people in the church can fall away by repudiating Christ and that it is impossible 
to restore those people again to repentance. Those who have come to a true knowledge of the gospel, who have experienced the phenomena of salvation by means of their participation in the church, but who ultimately turn their back on Jesus, cannot afterwards be restored to repentance. That is the unavoidable statement that this passage asserts. How do people fall away? They fall away by doing what the Israelites did in the desert, by removing their trust in the Lord by repudiating his authority and his salvation that he offers, and by denying him the worship he deserves. The verb here is in the aorist tense, which in the Greek normally signifies a completed past action, something done in the past that is completed. So we have here a decisive break that has happened and is now accomplished. In the case of these Hebrew Christians, it is likely apostasy would mean a return to Judaism and therefore a denial of the saving significance of Christ's life and death, an action that was ominous in its terrible finality. Now, we see why it is impossible to restore such a person. They are crucifying, the text says, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and are holding him up to contempt. To reject Christ after having coming, come to the knowledge of the gospel is to say, as the Pharisees did, that he should be put away, that he's guilty as charge, a threat and an enemy worthy of death. To repudiate Christ is in effect to take up a hammer and nails and you yourself beating them into his hands and feet to make common cause with those who crucified him, to mock him like the soldiers who laughed and sneered. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Interestingly here, the writer shifts to the present tense, are crucified. This represents a present and persistent state of affairs. What happened in the past has led to a present state of the heart analogous to the attitude of the ones who actually crucified Jesus in the first place. And that present state makes a future return impossible. It is tempting to conclude that what is being said here is that people who are rejecting Christ cannot be saved because they're not repenting. But this is a point so obvious that it hardly bears emphasis. Instead, the point is the people described here are not able to repent and return to faith in Jesus unto salvation because of the hardening effect of their apostasy. Now, we always want to leave room for the sovereign power of God, remembering Jesus' words to his disciples. With man, this is impossible. With, but with God, all things are possible. In fact, it is a vital distinction for understanding this text. A translation issue clears things up a bit. The Greek text does not say it is impossible for those who fall away to be brought back to repentance, as some versions say, but rather the English Standard Version is much more accurately. It is impossible to restore again those who fall away, we are not able to restore them. But that does not mean that God cannot. Indeed, as long as the gospel goes forth, we should never despair of its power to save anyone. The point here is not to deny that apostasy 
is a real and terrible situation. Or to soften the writer's statements uh, that true apostates are in a dreadful spiritual estate. The point is that we should never stop reaching out to others with the gospel, even if they seem to have fallen away in a manner described by this passage. Certainly, it is dire to think of a professing Christian repudiating the Lord. But we have the example of Peter as one who did deny Jesus and yet came back to faith and was made the leading apostle. Set him against the example of Judas Iscariot, who after long years in Jesus' company, having presumably evangelized others, provide, uh, performed miracles in his name, came to the decisive moment, moment of apostasy that resulted in his great betrayal. At that point, Judas was lost despite his evident mourning over what he had done. There was nothing left but death and eternal damnation for Judas. What is the difference between a Peter and a Judas? One failed in his fidelity to Christ, as Christians often do, while the other decisively repudiated him. One did not live up to the cross, while the other despised it. This seems to be the distinction Paul has in mind in 2 Timothy 2, where he wrote, If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It may be hard to discern the difference between these two, but the difference is a very significant and great one indeed. There is one way to positively identify those who belong to Christ, but it requires time. We see this in verses 7 and 8, which provide an illustration that makes the matter much clearer. For the land drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. What matters is not whether or not rain falls upon the ground, for God sends rain on the good and the evil just as he does his saving word. It is the presence of fruit that ultimately tells the tale. Jesus said a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Truly regenerate, genuine believers can do terrible things. Peter showed when he betrayed the Lord three times. The record of the church reveals this over and over again. But a good tree, that is one connected to Christ by faith, and has the Holy Spirit indwelling him, will necessarily go on to bear good fruit it cannot do otherwise. The bad tree simply lacks power to bear lasting fruit unto God, however well watered it may be. However, it real it second-hand experience of salvation uh, by virtue of affiliation with the church, particularly under trial and hardship, it produces only thorns and thistles and thus is worthless, near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now, what are the implications of this teaching? There are vital implications that flow from this. 
The first has to do with the nature of true and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Mere knowledge of the gospel is never enough. Understanding and even intellectually affirming Christian teaching is insufficient for salvation. As important as doctrine is, as important as the knowledge of God's word is, it is a personal knowledge and trust in Christ that alone constitutes saving faith. Now, what does this say about your faith? Let me warn you that the church is no place to play games with this kind of stuff, much less for indecision and loitering. When you hear the gospel and you understand what is taught, you incur an obligation to God to press on to saving faith. Hebrew shows it's very dangerous to toy with this kind of knowledge. By delaying, you run the risk of a terrible fate. Furthermore, if you're not willing to turn to Christ for salvation today, what makes you think you will ever be any different tomorrow or the next day or the next day? It will be harder to embrace Christ later if you delay now. I told you, I, I uh, go to the gym, and the time I go to the gym, it's generally when all the uh, more retired people go because they have that time in the afternoon as well. And so they're older and they're much harder to talk to about the gospel I'm discovering. Because you, you speak about being set in your ways, but there is a hardness. Sometimes I feel like it's concrete. Sometimes I feel like just taking a hammer and a chisel and trying to break through to get them to listen to me. Because their heart is being covered with hardness. And to break through and to share the gospel with them has been a great challenge. I've tried it anyway, not with much success yet that I can see, but trying to be faithful. But Paul said, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. A second implication we can take from this powerful text is that the test of our faith is the fruit we bear. Surely that is how this passage fits into the context of the overall letter. The author has been exhorting his readers to press on to maturity, And now he warns them that a failure to do so calls into question the reality of their conversion. How do we know somebody is truly converted? We know, merely not, we know not merely because he's made a profession of faith, but because the power of the gospel bears fruit in this person under trial. Now we have to be very careful here and admit our own inability to read the hearts of men and women. Nevertheless, it's an implication to take seriously. If you are content with merely drinking in the rain, but not concerned to honor God in your life, if you are unable and unwilling to hold fast to God and praise His name in times of trouble, then that is a very alarming sign that ought to provoke in you a fundamental reflection regarding the state of your own soul. We always have to be careful with this. One class of people described by these statements in verses 4 and 5, people who have a knowledge and experience of spirituality, is children who grow up in the church. How easy it is for them to reproduce verses and slogans that they've been hearing all of their lives, either to keep the parents happy or to merit their praise. But we must look for fruit in their lives, fruit issuing from their profession of faith. We must challenge them to give evidence of a heart commitment to grow and advance in their faith, which is their only safety. I have noticed that if an adult 
is truly vile and a blasphemous hater of Christ and Christianity. It is often someone who was raised in the church and whose rock-hard heart is described by this very passage. Let us therefore pray diligently for our children and set an example not of hypocrisy, but of real and attractive faith. Our passage, furthermore, causes us to reflect upon what passes for evangelism in our time, and especially upon revivalism. The goal, it often seems, is simply to put people's names on a list to increase the size of a congregation in the name of eternal security and to pat ourselves on the back and move on to the next convert. When such people later repudiate Christ, whom they've never really known, they are far worse off than they were before. This passage tells us that evangelism and discipleship can never be separated, just as conversion is manifested and proved only by those bearing spiritual fruit. And this leads to a final consideration. What does this passage say about assurance of salvation? The first answer is that it ought to make our statements more careful and sober. The picture here is a somber one. It depicts professing believers, probably church members, who are not really saved at all, but fall away into a hopeless state. Andrew Murray said, My assurance of salvation is not something I carry with me as a railway ticket or a banknote to be used as occasion calls. My assurance of salvation is found in the living fellowship and the, with the living Jesus in love and obedience. It is for this reason, that Reformed theology has traditionally and wisely shunned, shunned the term eternal security or once saved, always saved, but has instead emphasized the perseverance of the saints, which is what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing. Ian Murray notes the distinction by telling of a Calvinist who was surprised to find one of Wesley's preachers in agreement with his teaching. The Calvinist stated that he did not think they taught the perseverance of the saints. The Wesleyan replied, Oh, sir, you've been misinformed. It is the perseverance of sinners, we doubt. He was right. It is the saints who persevere. Those who trust and walk with God are safe and secure. I will talk about this more next week. Where, then, do you look for assurance? You can and should look to the unchanging character of God and the certainty and absoluteness of His promises. You can and should look to the once-for-all work of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient for everything you need. Never look to yourself or to the strength of your faith or the protection of the various spiritual disciplines or methodologies, however useful they may be. It is not yourself or any regime that depends on human strength that assures your salvation, but God who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. That is the writer's own conclusion in chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Assurance is something that comes from the knowledge of God and His promises, and thus the result of the exercise of faith. And the same thing's true of security. It is through faith alone that we are ever secure. Security comes or arises from trusting in Christ, from persevering to the end in the power of the Spirit. 
Perhaps the best statement of this is found in Philippians 3, 12, where Paul writes, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And so the assurance of a fruitful Christian, which we will talk about more next week, is what does a fruitful Christian look like, and what are these words of encouragement the writer of Hebrews gives us. But this text is to do one thing for you. It is to cause you to examine yourself, to see if you are really for real connected to Christ. Have you truly turned to Him? Are you trusting in Him and Him alone? And is there fruit seen in your life? It is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of the living God. If you fall away and repudiate Jesus and become one of those who gloried in his shame and crucifixion, it is impossible for you to be restored. And so the Bible here is pressing urgency upon you. It is pressing self-examination upon you. And it is telling you God doesn't play games. This is serious, sober stuff. Now, in my years as a minister, I seem like for the first 10 or 15 years as a minister, I never really encountered or saw anybody repudiate Christ and walk away. Perhaps it's because most of that was in the Southern culture. And, you know, when you're born in the South, you're, bo you're a Christian by birth, at least most of them think. Not all of them and not most of them, but some of them do, just because you're, you're born in a Christian Bible Belt culture. But the last 25 years of my ministry, I've seen a lot of people walk away. I've seen them walk away. I've seen them repudiate Christ. I've seen them turn their back and walk away. And it breaks my heart every single time. So as your pastor, as one who loves you and cares for you, please take this warning serious. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. It is a difficult text and a challenging text. And it causes us to consider the dangers of apostasy, the reality of falling away. And Lord, we pray for those in our body who are on the fence with this, who are drifting toward the world, who are like the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils, whose life is being choked out by the weeds of worldliness and earthly care and the hardened people upon whom the seed falls but never roots. Lord, how we pray that you would turn them again to Jesus and draw them back to yourselves. And we pray for children in our midst who are exposed week after week to wonderful teaching and the preaching of the Word. We pray that you would soften their hearts, cause the lights to come on and cause them to have their own relationship with you by their own faith that you have given them now father as we continue to worship may we do so by giving back to you a portion of the glorious grace you have given us in jesus name amen